the prophecy of Joel, tucked away between Hosea and Amos. Joel chapter 2. We'll begin to read at verse 12 of chapter 2. Before we do that, let me remind you that Pentecost was for the church the Hallelujah Day. On Pentecost, the kingdom of heaven came to earth. Not an earthly kingdom, but the kingdom of heaven is on earth in the church ruled by Christ. The king came first, you know, as a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes. He came as a servant and he ministered unto others and submitted to the, our penalty of death. On Pentecost, beloved, he returns as king, not visibly, but it is the beginning of the return of the king. Pentecost is the beginning of the return of the king until his coming will culminate in his visible personal appearance at the end of the age after the gospel has gone over all the world and upon the clouds of heaven. It's with that in mind we read this portion of the scripture, I said verse 12, but before we do that, I point you to verse 10, the earth shall quake before them and so on, the Lord shall utter his voice, speaks of the moon becoming dark and the stars not shining, and then notice the concluding clause of verse 11, for the day of the Lord is great and very terrible and who can abide it? We're going to run into that phrase again at the conclusion of the passage. Therefore also, now, saith the Lord, turn ye even to me with all your heart, and with fasting, and with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your heart, and not your garments, and turn unto the Lord your God. For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and repenteth him of the evil. Who knoweth? Who knoweth in the light of the severity of your sins? if he will return and repent and leave a blessing behind him, even a meat offering and a drink offering unto the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, sanctify a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, and it has to do especially with the elderly. Gather the children and those that suck the breasts. Let the bridegroom go forth of his chamber and the bride out of her closet. There's something more important now even than getting married. Let the priests and the ministers of the Lord weep between the porch and the altar. Let them say, Spare thy people, O Lord, and give not thine heritage to reproach that the heathen should rule over them. Wherefore should they say among the people, Where is their God? Then will the Lord be jealous for the land and pity his people, following repentance. Yea, the Lord will answer and say unto his people, Behold, I will send you corn and wine and oil, and ye shall be satisfied therewith. And I will no more make you a reproach among the heathen. I will remove far off from you the northern army. The Babylonians, you understand, will drive him into a land barren and desolate with his face toward the East Sea. That's, of course, the, the Dead Sea, and his hinder part towards the utmost sea. That's the 
Mediterranean, and his stink shall come up, and his ill savor shall come up, because he hath done great, that is, terrible things. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord will do great things. He will also do terrible things, awesome things. Be not afraid, ye beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness do spring. For the tree beareth her fruit, the fig tree and the vine do yield their strength. Be glad then, ye children of Zion, rejoice in the Lord your God, for he hath given you the former rain moderately, that is in due measure, and he will cause to come down for you the rain, the former rain and the latter rain in the first month, that is the time of planting. And the floors shall be full of wheat, and the fats shall overflow with wine and oil. And I will restore to you the years that the locust hath eaten, the canker worm, the caterpillar, and the palmer worm, my great army which I sent among you. And ye shall eat in plenty, and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God that hath dealt wondrously with you, and my people shall never be ashamed. And ye shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, that I am the Lord your God, that is Jehovah, the God of my word, and none else, and my people shall never be ashamed. Now follows our text. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions. Also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days will I pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke, the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord come. There's that phrase again. It's come to pass that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be delivered. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance, as the Lord hath said, and in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. Thus far the reading of this prophetic word and our text as stated runs from verses 28 through the end of the chapter 32. And it shall come to pass that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Who here is not familiar with those words spoken elsewhere and by another? Words, of, quote, of course, that were quoted by Peter who by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, from a certain point of view, suddenly became an apostle. And he with the 120 have been anointed by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in that upper room, and they went forth into the streets with an exuberance and with a joy, and they were speaking in tongues in different languages, and was a feast day, of course, and there were those of Jewish extraction from all over the whole of the Mediterranean world hearing them speak in their own languages, that, are, that is, their second dialect. They all knew what the Hebrew-Aramaic was, but they also had their own dialects in the different provinces, and they were hearing them speak in these different 
languages, and the scoffers, of course, said they must be drunk. And the Apostle Peter says this has nothing to do with drunkenness at the nine o'clock in the morning. This is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And so you have, of course, these words that are carried and spoken by the Apostle Peter at the day that we call Pentecost. And that is the day, that is the beginning, really, the official beginning of the New Testament age. Notice New Testament. Testament, beloved. Last will and testament. In the New Last Will and Testament will appear names that are not simply of Jewish extraction. Not even predominantly of Jewish extraction. In the last, the new Last Will and Testament will be written the names of Gentiles, German, Dutch, and all the rest, called to be heirs of the great inheritance that had been purchased by the redemptive blood of the elect from all nations, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the beginning of the New Testament age, and the point I want to make here in the introduction is that the New Testament age is the age of evangelism. It's the age of the preaching of the gospel. And it's the age of the preaching of the gospel into all the world. And a preaching that goes even to the Gentiles themselves. In the Old Testament, of course, there was isolation, separation for the Jews in the Old Testament meant a separation in a little narrow land. It was in many ways walled by swords of steel, and all those who would come from the outside were warned, trespassers will be prosecuted to the full extent of the law. For them, separation was an isolation in their spiritual immaturity, lest they be carried away by the, the world. And instead of affecting those who came in, they themselves would be affected and influenced by their idolatry, which of course, as you know, often they were far often, but separation having to do with isolation in the New Testament, beloved, that changes. Churches are organized in cities, cities as wicked as that of Corinth, and they're not told now, pick up your roots and your dwellings and go someplace that is safer. No, no, you stay right in the city of Corinth with all of its abominations and its wickedness and you bear witness there, and you continue in the preaching of the gospel. And your separation will be that of a spiritual distinctiveness, withstanding the temptations and standing over against their immoralities and their errors. What's the explanation for the evangelism that would have power and bear fruit and for a people who would be able to live in the world and yet not be of the world as they bore the name of Christ. The explanation, of course, is the Holy Spirit of the ascended Lord Jesus. And the life he brought and the mind he brought. So that there is a fuller knowledge and a greater maturity 
And instead of just as children in our own schools to be protected and taught there, they become of age and they go to the colleges of the world and are to maintain their identity and their witness there. And able to do that because of maturity. Well, has to do, beloved, with this matter of the Holy Spirit and his coming as the gift of Christ. The Spirit who sanctifies and the Spirit who elevates in knowledge and spiritual abilities and who lays upon the church a calling. And the calling, beloved, is to preach the gospel not only in congregations. The calling is to preach the gospel into all the world. And that's our calling too as Protestant Reformed churches. We, don't, we must not simply leave that to other denominations. We'll take care of our own, as I said in congregational prayer, and let others do the work of going into all the world to preach the gospel, which was the last, if you recall, the last injunction of the Lord Jesus before he ascended and left them. How many missionaries do we have? I am not here to stir up agitation, beloved, against broader assemblies. Simply to remind you of the calling of the church of Christ Jesus in the world and that we are called to pray. You may not be a missionary. We ought to be praying, Father. We must be praying, beloved, that our Lord will use our churches too for the raising up of those who will go into all the world. They can see wonderful, but it must not be at the expense of the vital calling of the church of the New Testament to preach the gospel into all the world. We have the truth. It's not simply to be admired in our own circles. It is to be brought into all the world and then watch the Holy Spirit take that wonderful truth and lay it to the hearts of those who hear and save them chosen unto eternal life as they now also rejoice in the gospel and the truth of a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God. And save them also in their generations, which this passage also speaks about, you know, with reference to sons and daughters. With that in mind, the Lord's spirit of prophecy promised when this was to be fulfilled, what that spirit came to and comes to bestow, he's still working, you know. He came on Pentecost. He still is coming and comes and is poured out, and where he is to be found, the Lord's, in capital letters, purposely reminding us of Jehovah, and then of course of Jehovah's salvation, because this Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, but he comes to us as directed by Christ Jesus, the Son of Man and the head of the church. And it shall come to pass afterwards, 
that my spirit will be poured out upon all flesh. Afterward, after what? Well, beloved, it comes after what has, we have already read in the chapter, as that goes back to verse 11. A day of the Lord, great and terrible, and who can abide it? And that has reference to the Babylonians coming as a locust upon the land to bring ruin upon that land and the judgment of God upon an apostatizing and apostate nation and a people and driving them out of the promised land. They were likened to locusts because of the devastation, of course, that the Babylonians left behind. You read in the verses just prior to our text of restoring the years that the locusts have eaten. That's to come, of course, with the operations of the of the Holy Spirit. But first of all, you have this day of the Lord in which there is a judgment upon the nation due to its sins and its departure from the word and the ways of the Lord. But also understand that that judgment of the Lord upon that nation had everything to do with their lack of repentance, sincere heartfelt repentance, which is why following this mention in verse 11 of the day of the Lord, it says, turn ye unto me and rend your hearts and not your garments, and speaks of this weeping of the priests and of all the people, spare us, O Lord, and give not thy heritage to reproach. And then that repentance worked in accordance with God's will by the discipline of the Lord through that judgment of the Lord and by the word of the Lord being brought to bear upon them as well. And then, following that disciplinary work and that repentance that flowed from that disciplinary work, there will be this day of glory and of blessing and I will restore the years that the locusts have eaten that you yourselves wasted years to have a spiritual prophet that you wasted due to your sins and your foolishness. How? How will I do that? I will do that by the outpouring of my Holy Spirit upon all flesh. That's how I will accomplish this. And then I will, following that work, bring about a final judgment. And that final judgment will be for the cleansing of this present creation from all its wickedness and its sin, that there may be a new heavens and a new earth where my now sanctified and glorified people may live with me and the bridegroom forever. That's all you see encapsulated in this passage in its own way. It is a marvelous and comprehensive text. It's quite a prophecy you might say. So you have this passage and Joel declares it and if you were to ask well 
when then are these words to, were these words to be fulfilled? And you were to answer, well, on Pentecost, of course. You would be right, but you would only be partially right. Because these words refer to more than just the day of Pentecost. These are words, beloved, that have to do with the whole of the New Testament age, which is the age of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. An age that begins in Pentecost, called the New Testament, as I said, and the New Testament age of evangelism, if you will, that will culminate finally in the final great day of the Lord, that terrible day when the Lord shall appear and the moon will turn into blood and the sun shall be turned into darkness. That will be the end, but the culmination, and then out of that, of course, will come the new heavens and the new earth. It's interesting, you know, that in many ways, it's with reference to that, that the Old Testament itself ends in the prophecy of Malachi and the very closing, the very, the very concluding verses of the last words of the Old Testament of the prophecy of Malachi, you read, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Notice, the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Elijah the prophet, and you know, of course, that he re that refers to John the Baptist. What was the purpose of John the Baptist? To point to the Messiah, the coming of the King. Behold, the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to the fathers, lest I come and smite the earth, that is the land with a curse, and I do that immediately, and there be no gathering of a people and no salvation. You're simply removed in my wrath, and, should I say, in my impatience with you. But that's not the Lord God. What he does is to warn concerning the coming of a final judgment. From a certain point of view, the final judgment is coming and it will be all comprehensive and there will be no salvation following that day. Now is the day of salvation. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon the Lord today. Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your but he does that through the judgments in creation even. You have here in this passage a reference to creation itself, of the moon into blood and the sun into darkness. That's of course oft often displayed when there are catastrophes of a major sort, great earthquakes when the dust is in the air and you look at the moon and it is blood red, hasn't turned to blood, but the color is red, and even the sun may be darkened. I understand it's kind of true here due to the fires in Canada at, at certain times, how the darkness comes as the fires rage. Well, the Lord has, in his, in his working as creator, brought judgments upon the world to speak of the coming of the final judgment. I think of a certain time in the first century with the explosion of Mount Vesuvius, Interest, you know, the, the, the uh, destruction that came by 
Mount Vesuvius on the city of Pompeii. And what's striking about the city of Pompeii as they have discovered, as they have dug through the feet and yards of ashes and lava, is that it was a San Francisco, New Orleans, and Las Vegas all rolled into one. And the mountain rumbled, and it rumbled, and they looked at it and said, it will not come. And the Lord, at a certain date, set his explosion and covered that city as Sodom and Gomorrah in one fell swoop. They would not hear the warnings of the rumbles. They would remain fixed in their sins. And the Lord then, in his judgment, carried them away. But there was fair warning, you understand. And so it is, beloved, with God himself. We are those who are to preach judgment. Flee from the wrath to come. We must preach the final judgment. When the judge of all the earth will have the whole of humanity before him and judge every man according to his deeds, meaning your immoralities and your sins will be brought to light. Are you ready to face the judge uncovered in your sins? Because his appearing will be dreadful and terrible. Who shall abide the day of his coming? That's what we are to preach. The apostles preach that. But the question is, is that the fundamental word? Is that the basic word that the church of the New Testament is to bring? Judgment and wrath. And judgment and wrath. Hell, what do they call it? Ashes in hell fire? Fire in brimstone? No, beloved. There must be a savor of that. It must not be forgotten. But that's not to dominate the preaching of the New Testament church. What is to dominate and to be at the heart of the path message of the New Testament church is the gospel which has to do, of course, with the good news that Jehovah God, who is the God of judgment and of wrath, is also a God of mercy, long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to everlasting life. And beloved, that you understand is what has, that, that's understand has bearing upon this text. It says that it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Well, he means after this disciplinary work through the through the rod of Babylon and so on. And then he says, after the disciplinary work and the work of repentance, my working repentance, I shall restore to you the years that the locusts have eaten. That is, restore to you that which you in your foolishness forfeited. And I took from you by the Babylonians. But in my mercy, I will arise as I hear your call unto me to plead with me, and I will Restore to you that which I took from you, a blessing and an abundance. But he adds to that then, with that promise of the restoring of the years of the locust, this matter of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit for the gathering of a great harvest. And how will he gather that great harvest? Well, beloved, he will do that 
by the means of the Holy Spirit. Notice he says, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. My spirit. But we understand that that spirit refers in the New Testament to the spirit as he is now the spirit of the crucified, risen, and ascended Lord Jesus and now brings out the to accomplish what Christ hath died to accomplish, even the gathering of his people through the preaching of the gospel. As Peter says, this is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel. In other, in other words, he says to those who are gathered in Jerusalem to mark the feast days of that, of that time, having to do with the Passover running then through the, 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 the Pentecost itself, you who have been looking for and talking about the coming of the Messiah and the Messianic Kingdom, I am here to tell you that the day has arrived. And the day has arrived because the, ones, the one whom we followed and whose name we confess, this Jesus of Nazareth, hath ascended up on high, and he has now sent forth his Holy Spirit, and it's the beginning of the great Messianic Age. And now you are called to believe his name that you might be citizens of that kingdom. And what there's going to be, you see, by the outpouring of that spirit is what I have said is a great harvest. If you go back to the preceding verses in the chapter, we read them. He speaks of the former rain in measure and the latter rain and it all in due times. And the result of that rain there is the crops that grow, and the floors are full of wheat, and the fats overflow with wine and, and oil, and so on. That's not simply talking about an agricultural harvest, and you're going to return to the promised land, and that little narrow strip of land by the Mediterranean Sea is suddenly going to blossom as a, as a rose, and you're going to become wealthy in your agricultural endeavors. This, of course, is prophetic, and he's using earthly language in order to speak of spiritual things. And what he has in mind is not simply their agricultural harvest and in an abundance, but he has in mind the harvest of souls, something so valuable as a man's soul. What will a man give in exchange for his own soul? There is no gold or silver that's of value enough to purchase a man's soul. It's of Greatest value, is it not, where a man will end up spending his everlasting eternal destiny in heaven or in hell. The harvest of souls. The locust came, Babylon came, and devoured the harvest, if you will, left nothing behind. Now comes the Messiah, the promised Messiah. He has come, and he is a Messiah who promises a great harvest of souls. The first parable, beloved, in the Gospel of Matthew was what? You know what the first parable was as he likened something to the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is as a sower who went forth to sow. And he scattered the seed. And some fell on one kind of soil and another fell on another kind of soil. But in the end, there was a harvest, 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. 
Christ Jesus, the great sower of the word. To have a crop, beloved, a spiritual, uh, agricultural harvest, what do you need? You need seed. But scattering seed isn't going to do it. Scatter it on the highway and see what kind of a crop you get. Scatter it on shallow and parched soil and see what kind of a crop you get. But it's necessary. It's of vital importance. But then you need the proper soil that has been cultivated and prepared. And even that's not enough. You can plow your fields, as some of you have, and if there is no rain, no water from irrigation, if you will, which is the result of snow and rain, you aren't going to get a crop either. You need the seed. You need the soil prepared. And you need the showers of blessing, don't you? Send the showers of blessing, Lord, that the seed may spring up in the soil that is prepared and there might be a harvest. And you know that is a parable concerning spiritual things as Christ Jesus sends forth his word. But for his word to take root and to bear fruit, the heart has to be prepared. It has to be a new heart, cultivated. And even that cultivation reminds me of repentance as it's broken up and prepared, and then has to be the shower of the blessing, the operations of the Spirit as the water of life itself. And so what's brought in the end are the fruits of repentance, you see, and of that this prophet and this prophecy is speaking and you understand that the Holy Spirit was working on Pentecost and doing what was prophesied is that when he fell upon the 120, they went out and they spoke in different languages. Not simply the babbling of tongues loosed, but different languages that were heard by the gathering and the smattering of the Jews from around the whole of the Mediterranean world and they heard them speak in their own languages. And that was an indication, of course, that the harvest was not simply going to come from those of Jewish extraction. One did not need to be related by blood to Father Abraham. Being related simply by blood to Father Abraham was not going to save you, was going to do you no good. You needed to be related to the seed of Abraham, who is Jesus of Nazareth, Christ Jesus. And he was going to gather his people from every nation, tribe, and tongue, whether they were circumcised or uncircumcised. And so the gathering here by the, by the, by the work of the Holy Spirit foretold the Jews on that first day of the New Testament age that you are simply the beginning of many as they are brought in. And what shall be brought to those of many languages and tongues is what this passage calls, calls salvation. Salvation. And that word is said here to be deliverance. But deliverance, beloved, has to do with an escape. That's interesting. Delivered from bondage. But an escape of something that threatens. And if you don't leave this condemned edifice soon, 
and it falls upon your ears, around your ears you're going to perish with it. Or perhaps to be clutched by some monstrous evil, you better escape the clutches, you better be delivered and escape, or you're going to perish. You see, that's the, the idea. There's a sense of urgency in the call, because if you're not delivered and you don't escape, you're going to perish by the power of the evil or that which is above your heads and about to fall around your ears. And so there's the calling, the forewarning, the day of opportunity. While it is today, harden not your hearts. Hear the call, lest you turn your backs upon it and you perish in your way. One is, that's what, that's what comes, that's what's said here, of course, in the in the passage, when it concludes with the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood and the great and terrible day of the Lord come, that's the day of final judgment. And when that day comes, if you have not been delivered and you have not escaped, it's going to be your eternal damnation. You'll be sentenced to everlasting condemnation. One is reminded of the book of the Revelation, and in the book of the Revelation, chapter 6, and there you'll read that there is the crying, the opening of the sixth seal, and the stars of the heaven fell unto the earth, even as a fig tree casteth its untimely figs. And the heavens departed as a scroll rolled together, and the islands were moved out of their places, and the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the mighty hid themselves, and said to the mountains, Fall on us, hide us from him that sitteth on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? But that's stated, you see, by the gospel writers before it actually occurs. So that those who hear might know the danger in which they stand and make a determination whether they're going to lay it to heart or not. And if they do not, they have no one to blame but themselves. I called unto you. I informed you. Your blood, you would not hear. You would not listen. Your blood be upon your own Heads. And so this statement, you see, of judgment, that a people might understand where they're at and submit to the word of God and flee and cry for mercy and be saved. And so, beloved, you have this warning passage, the call to Rend your hearts and not your garments. And how is that going to take place? Well, beloved, that's going to take place by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then there is a deliverance. But I say again that it is in the way of discipline first. Various judgments fall. And the Lord disciplines even for his own graciously. It may be severe, and it's a gracious discipline so that we understand the seriousness with which God himself takes sin. And we better take that sin seriously too and turn unto him 
and plead upon his mercy in the name of the Lord Jesus, that one only name under heaven by which a man may be saved, that we and our houses might be spared. And there you have, beloved, the New Testament age, as that word has gone forth and been worked by the Holy Spirit in the hearts of many that they have taken heed to their ways and repented of their sins and called upon the name of the Lord in the name of the Lord Jesus as he has preached and been saved with their houses according to the sovereign power and the eternal mercy of Jehovah God. And to that, beloved, we must set ourselves. I'm reminded, you know, of the words of the one whom Malachi called Elijah, Elijah the prophet, who of course is John the Baptist, and John the Baptist, you know, came preaching as well. And we read in Matthew chapter 3, Now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. It's interesting before that. He says, I say unto you, we, you say we have Abraham for our father. We're related to Abraham. We're Jews. Really. I say to you that God is able of the stone to raise up children of Abraham. Just because you're a child of Abraham doesn't make you somehow special and spared of the judgment as you live and will not depart from your sin and folly. Now also the axe is laid into the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Now notice, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. He that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoe I'm not worthy to, to bear, says there. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. And then the fan is in the hand to purge the floor, wheat gathered into the garner, and the rest burnt with unquenchable fire. So he preaches judgment, but he preaches judgment in the interest of the gospel to point the remnant of the Jews to this Jesus of Nazareth, the Lamb of God, mightier than I. And how will this Jesus of Nazareth accomplish his great saving work? He will baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with a fire. And that ties in, of course, to the gift of the Holy Ghost as well. But it's striking that there have been judgments made prior to the final judgment. And one of those judgments, the love, took place at the cross. Christ says, it's finished. I, I yield my spirit into thy hands. And there was this mighty earthquake. And what happened in Jerusalem, beloved? The veil was rent from the top to the bottom. Judgment upon the nation of Israel, of the Jews as such. And Jerusalem will mean no more to me than any other secular city. The holy place is exposed and Ichabod, the glory is no longer there. Judgment upon you, upon the Jewish nation as they crucified their king and in their own doing as a nation disinherited themselves. And then he arose again on the third day. And again, there was a mighty earthquake. And there was, beloved, as a result of that, the moon turning into blood. Color of blood as the dust is in the air. And the darkening of the rays of the sun as well. And when he arose from the dead, beloved, it was the judgment of the world. 
when he arises, you know, the foundation of the kingdoms of men have this horrible fissure and crack in them, and they are marked for destruction. They are under condemnation, you see, and they are bound to fall as their foundation itself has been weakened and the fissure is there, and yet it stands. Why does it stand? Because in those edifices, in those kingdoms, are yet the people of God. And the Lord will not have even those kingdoms and those buildings, if you will, fall down upon their ears and they perish with all those who are consigned unto eternal life. And he will use the gospel, you understand, to bring them out of that destruction, away from those edifices that are marked for everlasting destruction. He does that by the operations of the Spirit. And how does the Spirit operate to bring about this salvation? Well, the passage tells us, you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and it speaks of pouring out my Spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your old men shall dream dreams. It speaks of sons and daughters prophesying. The idea there is not that they will be those who will be able to tell the future. That's going to be their outstanding feature. They become little prophets who can tell you what the future is in this detail or that detail. Prophecy has here to do with knowledge. That's the great gift of the Holy Spirit. Not in the speaking of languages, that's temporary. Not in the ability to to heal and do miracles, that also is temporary. The miracles, all they did was to re re return physical health, beloved. In the end, physical health is of no use in heaven and the everlasting kingdom. You better have more than physical health when you die. It's a matter of knowledge that is important. That is necessary in the way of salvation. When the, when the prophet says, is moved by the Spirit to speak of prophesying, he means... I will give, he will give to you the gift to understand what the prophets say. There's the prophetic word, and now you will be able to turn to the words of the prophets, and you will understand them, and you will lay them to heart. And that's, of course, Pentecost. You think of a man named Simon Peter, a disciple. You might say a simple, uneducated fisherman. And yet on Pentecost, suddenly... He becomes an apostle of understanding and illumination. And he's able to turn to the Holy Scriptures and almost at will say, this Holy Scripture applies to this, and this is how you are to apply it to your life as well. Where did that sudden increase in knowledge come from? You read Acts 1. Christ ascends into heaven. You know what the disciples asked the angels? Is he now going to establish the kingdom of heaven on earth? Is he now going to return to Jerusalem and have an earthly kingdom? That's where they still were at. In spite of the cross and the resurrection and, and his instruction, it still did not, they did still not completely comprehend it. And the Holy Spirit comes. And Peter becomes an apostle of understanding turns to the prophets and says, and this is how this prophecy applies, and this is how it is fulfilled, and this is the word of the Lord as it has to be applied to your life, and so on. That's by the 
illumination of the Holy Spirit. But understand, beloved, it wasn't simply upon the twelve who would become apostles to turn them into preachers that the Spirit fell. He fell upon the 120. They also spoke in languages. They represent the church of the New Testament. And they bore witness. And you know, as a result of the witness and the preaching of the gospel on that first day of the New Testament, there was the gathering of 3,000 souls. That's quite a number. And they asked, what must we do? And he said, repent. You're called to repentance. Confess your sins and cast yourself upon the mercy of God in the name of this Jesus of Nazareth, the one only name under heaven that we preach. And the Spirit worked beloved. And he began the great ingathering. And a few days later, you read, 5,000 more men were added. That means with their families as well. And the church began to grow by leaps and by bounds. And then, of course, they had to go into all the world. And it's not that they were so keen on that. To take the gospel to the Gentiles, to the uncircumcised, which means the defiled, the eaters of pig meat and all the rest if you can believe it, and sit down in fellowship with them and have congregational fellowship and the Lord's Supper with the uncircumcised and the defiled. The apostle Peter on the rooftop said, oh no, Lord, I've never eaten that which is unclean. Not me, Lord. And two knock on the door and he goes to the house of Cornelius. And he has to bring to Cornelius the uncircumcised Gentile, the gospel, and as he brings the gospel, the spirit works. And Cornelius and his household begin to speak in languages as well. And the apostle Peter himself says, how in the world can we deny the water of baptism to these uncircumcised Gentiles and bring them into the church if the Holy Spirit himself is pleased to dwell within the spirit of our Lord Jesus and have fellowship? Who are we not to have fellowship with them, baptize them, they are with us in spiritual status as the new children of Abraham, the seed of Abraham, because they have the seed of Christ, who is the seed of Abraham in them. And so, beloved, you have the working of the Holy Spirit in the, the way of the development of knowledge, the ability to preach the gospel, and what we call the priesthood of all believers. Because it's not only the apostles and those who are trained in seminary who are able to open the scriptures and then to teach you this. Yeah, sometimes we may say, but it's this way in the Greek or that way in the Greek. And you say, okay, that's wonderful. It's in the Greek that way. But what you bring to me from the Greek, better be consistent with the rest of the scriptures, young man, or you don't belong on the pulpit. We may not have education in foreign languages, we have the scriptures in our hands written in our own language and we know that scripture interprets scripture and that it is consistent and I don't care what you say the Greek but if your interpretation of the Greek is out of line with the rest of the scriptures it is an improper interpretation how do you know that? because you have the Holy Spirit and you have the wisdom high education or little education by his by his teaching and his illumination. And so, beloved, the gift of the Holy Spirit that brings 
in its time, the spiritual maturity. And yes, beloved, you can bear witness. You can bear witness to the name of Jesus, the one and only name under heaven by which a man may be saved. Why salvation in this Jesus you keep talking about? You know why. He's the Son of God. He's a special person, unique in all his ways. Why should that one dying on a cross have such power and salvation? Because the one who was crucified was the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, and that means his sacrifice was of infinite value, don't you see? Setting him apart from all the other. Believe on his name as the Son of God and what he did and what he has said and the work he performed. And then add to that your own personal witness because this is what I know he has done for me. What peace he has brought to my mind, to my life, to my soul. And until you know him, you will in the end be empty and no matter what you pursue in this world, in the end, it will not satisfy. They are broken cisterns and you know that deep, deep down, don't you? There is the water from one cistern that satisfies. It is the water of life, and it's the water of life that's brought to us by the Holy Spirit concerning the one who poured him out, if you will, the Lord Jesus. And by the way, you are prophets in the sense of being able to foretell the future. The Lord is coming again. That's prophecy. And not only do you say the Lord is coming again, his words are true. How do we know? Here are the signs of the time. You're aware of them too. And they are increasing in their intensity, are they not? As the scriptures have foretold, we prophesy he's coming soon. And you better prepare yourself. You better repent of your sins and turn or perish. This is the word to you. And where will they find this Holy Spirit? says here, wonders in heaven, and then it says as well that they will call upon the name of the Lord in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance. doesn't say there, Zion and Jerusalem shall be delivered. It says in Zion and Jerusalem shall be deliverance. That represents the church. You will find the word of deliverance in the church, church membership. The importance of church membership. I could expand on this, time is brief, but in our day and age, that's what we must stress. The apostles went forth, and the Spirit worked, and there was conversions, and the gathering of believers, and then what did the apostles say? Now just go back to your own homes and scatter through the city and, and, and talk about Christianity. No. They organized them into congregations with elders, office bearers, who were to supervise them as a unit and as a community, and said, submit to their authority in the name of Christ Jesus and together as a congregation bear witness in the world. And here is the preaching of the gospel. It's as you read, you know, in the book of Romans and in the book of Romans chapter 10. These are the words. 
10. The scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. There is no difference between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is rich over all unto all that call upon him. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's the preaching of the gospel by the church institute. And notice, beloved, how it's phrased. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. As our text says as well, that this is to be preached and that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh and whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be delivered and saved. Whosoever will, beloved, that's how the scriptures end themselves. That's not Arminianism. That's biblical apostolic truth. Whosoever, not of Jewish extraction, but he who hears the gospel and the church preaches the gospel, and may be confident there's going to be a fruit and harvest. Why may the church preach the gospel and be confident there's going to be a fruit and a harvest? Because God is sovereign. He has sent his Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit knows who has been redeemed by the blood, and he will work irresistibly in the hearts of such, and they will hear, and they will turn, and they will believe, and they will escape, and they will be saved, beloved. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord. I want to conclude with these words from this chapter, Revelation chapter 22. And the Spirit and the Bride, notice that reference to the Bride, that's the church, beloved. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. Let him that heareth say, Come. Let him that is a thirst come. Whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. Whosoever will, moved by the gospel and the Holy Spirit, whatever might have been one's past sins and unworthiness, God is merciful and he receives and one is spared everlasting condemnation and has the right to everlasting glory. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly, surely, I come. Amen. Even so come. And with that, beloved, we conclude. Amen. Father in heaven, we thank thee for thy word. Apply it to our hearts. May we be those who by the operation of the Spirit respond in the way of faith, repentance unto godliness, and who also bear witness to whose we are in this present world. Gather thine own and preserve us and thy church. Till this Lord Jesus comes again. In Jesus' name, amen.